This is The Guardian. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Looking for your next great podcast? We live in unprecedented times. To make sense of it, what if you could learn from some of the most influential people on the planet? The podcast Tools and Weapons is hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Every week he has a candid conversation with guests, including Prime Ministers and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. The latest episode features Bayer CEO Bill Anderson. Though most of us know Bayer for pharmaceuticals, They're also focused on crop science. They're putting digital tools in the hands of farmers to get the most out of every acre. Listen to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. My first time I floated to the window of the spaceship, we were coming across the UK and Ireland and just heading into Brittany. And my first glance out the window was overwhelming. There was far too much there for me to be able to absorb. I was like a, an ant looking at uh, the Mona Lisa. You know, it's like, like, wow. Just over 200 people have been lucky and skilled enough to experience a spacewalk. Chris Hadfield is one of them. And the world doesn't change but you get better at looking at it and seeing it and picking out the the subtleties and the beauties and the nuance of it. And and then they don't just go away. They they now are part of, of who I am. It's safe to say that Chris Hadfield is a phenomenon. As an astronaut, he lived on the ISS for 144 days. He was the first Canadian to walk in space and probably the only person to sing Space Oddity whilst actually floating in a tin can far above the world. And now he's written a book, a novel... The Apollo Murders is a thriller set during the Cold War, in space, obviously. In it, the Americans and the Soviets are vying to get hold of something incredibly valuable hidden on the moon's surface. Chris's book explores something that the world's big powers are once again lining up for, a piece of lunar real estate. A Chinese rocket is on its way to the moon. India's Vikram lunar lander launched more than a month ago and has spent the week since circling the Earth in ever larger orbits. The human landing system is part of NASA's Artemis program to return astronauts to the moon as soon as 2024. But why are all these countries heading back to the moon? 
Guardian Science Editor Ian Sample asked Chris Hadfield about this reignition of the space race and his life as an astronaut. From The Guardian, I'm Madeleine Finlay and this is Science Weekly. Hello, Ian. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. Why did you decide to write a novel? Um, It's not easy to write a good thriller with convincing characters, believable dialogue and whatnot. It's really easy to write a bad thriller. (laughs) Uh, It was one of the writers who said, uh, no one can write 500 bad short stories. So I think I took uh, interest in that. Obviously, you need to learn as you go. And, you know, that's how I learned to ride a bike and fly airplanes and fly spaceships and command a space station. They're all just sort of degrees of the same thing. And so when uh, I gave myself the challenge of writing fiction, especially thriller fiction, I approached it like I approached learning to fly a Spitfire, you know, and, and that is, okay, I know what my objective is here. Uh, and so I, I took courses and then what I really did was I tried to sit at the feet of the masters of the genre and, and have a look at how they did it. To give people a sense, the book is set in this sort of alternate reality where there's an 18th Apollo mission to the moon. I'm, I'm wondering, you know, why you were particularly interested in this moment in time, this, this bunch of people? It was a fascinating time in history, um, 1972, 1973, with the Cold War and the space race and the end of the run to the moon. And there was an Apollo 18 and there was an Apollo 19. It's just Nixon canceled them because of financial reasons. They'd already made it to the moon. And he was terrified of having another Apollo 13, you know, where they just about lost the crew. Apollo Control Houston, uh, we've just had loss of signal uh, from uh, Honeysuckle. So the, the rocket ship was actually built. They just didn't launch it. So to me, it was kind of a perfect little storm of, of an excellent moment in history, my own personal experiences, and a chance hopefully to weave a really interesting, gripping thriller story in amongst it all. I, I have to say, I totally devoured the book. And, and one of the many things I really enjoyed about it is how you're able to capture in this very convincing way what it's like when something goes wrong. And when we come to the space aspect of this, you know, all the training astronauts do comes into its own. And I mean, Chris, you've been in some hairy situations in space yourself. I wondered if you could tell us about one of those and what goes through your mind as, as things are unfolding. Well, things go wrong constantly during a space mission. All three of my flights, uh, we had, we had serious problems. But perhaps the most compelling was when I was outside on my first spacewalk, um, there was contamination inside my spacesuit. Out there alone, in my spacesuit, um, hanging onto the outside of the spaceship, and first my left eye and then my right eye were essentially struck blind while I was outside. You know, when you get something horrible in your eye and it slams shut and starts tearing, hurts like crazy. But then without gravity, your tears don't fall. So the tear got bigger and bigger until that contaminated bubble flowed over into my right eye. And then both my eyes were struck blind. We ended up uh, just, I opened the the small round purge valve on the left side of my helmet. But it was quite an interesting moment, Ian, to be outside on my first spacewalk listening to (laughs) as as my oxygen is pouring out into the universe. 
Um, but uh, after a while, it worked. And we ended up completing every task on the spacewalk. Uh, and, th- and then it turned out it was something so prosaic. It was just the anti-fog. Some of that had picked up oil and soap and stuck it in my eye. As well as those tense times where you're faced with life or death decisions or, or the success or failure of the, of the mission, the spacewalk, that there are also those moments of profound awe when you're seeing things very few humans ever have. Those memories, they must stay with you, Chris. They define who you are, Ian, the ones that have made you just stop and made your jaw go slack and, and where you're just overwhelmed with the wonder of where you are. On board a spaceship, the frequency of that happening is pretty high because you're weightless and the world is pouring by and, and you're out in the universe. Those memories are with me forever. That, that's who I am. Good evening. Apollo 17 astronauts Gene Cernan and Jack Schmidt are on the moon and preparing to start their first moonwalk. It's been a long time since humans last set foot on the moon. In reality, we didn't get this um, 18th Apollo mission, not, not one that flew anyway. Why do you think we haven't been back? It was a race to see if we could do it. And, and obviously it was also a parallel geopolitical power ploy between the Americans and the Soviet Union. And so, you know, when the race is over and it left kind of a void, I think we learned a lot from that. And that is exploration, while it's fun to have a race, uh, races end. And if you're truly trying to explore the unknown, then that's never going to end. And so that's why we haven't been back to the moon with people, because the race was over. But the moon is still there, and we know very little about it. Why is it that space agencies want to put humans on the moon rather than more rovers? What do they hope to achieve there? Machines do some things far, far better than humans do. But the inverse is true as well. And, and when, when there's complexity and judgment and interpolation and artistic appreciation and, um, and really the point of it is human. You know, we're not doing all this so that robots can live happily forever after on the moon. It's, it's to try and serve our own purposes. But do you think a lot of that value of going to the moon is about scientific understanding of, of the moon itself or about um, furthering understanding of uh, living off off the Earth, perhaps as a stepping stone to Mars or, or, or other environments, or, or if it's, you know, about things like mining and resources? People live everywhere on Earth. You know, people live in the middle of deserts and at the tops of mountains. And, you know, so the moon is just going to be one more place that people live. The, the moon has no life, but it also has vast water resources, the accumulation of four billion years of comet and, and other impacts. And it has eternal power from the sun at the poles. So, so you have solar power and water. And right now it's just been prohibitively expensive because our technology hasn't been good enough. But with the new vehicles that are being uh, proven right now and also tested, um, the cost drastically drops, but but also it teaches us about the planet. We can use the moon as a tremendous observatory of the world and of the universe itself. There are these similarities between the moon and Antarctica. You know, it, it doesn't belong to anyone, but lots of nations want a slice of it in a way. I mean, how do you think we're going to ensure the kind of international cooperation we're going to need when it comes to lunar exploration and, and also exploitation of, of what's up there. 
Several years ago, I sat down with some extremely capable friends, and uh, we established the Open Lunar Foundation, of which I've been the chair for several years. And it tries to answer that exact question, Ian. What are human behaviors uh, in that new environment? What are property rights? What are the laws? Uh, what are the cultures? And and do we just sort of tragic comically take our current imperfect geopolitical structure of the world and just transplant that to the surface of the moon, you know, a little China, a little America, a little Russia, you know, <laughs> that would be just almost like like a farce. And Antarctica is way imperfect, but it is a, a great example of doing it differently. And the moon it not only gives us huge scientific potential, but also geopolitical potential. We have a clean slate. We can do this any way we want, and we won't get it right. We've never gotten it right, ever, but we will get it as right as we can. Back here on Earth, the uh, COP26 climate change conference has just wrapped up, and that obviously focused on an issue that we don't seem to be getting right and haven't been getting right for decades now. It always raises this question of whether we're spending money in the right areas and whether the vast amounts of money that we put into human space exploration are, are worth it. What's your take on this? How do you square that? Well, I've never heard anyone who said that sentence you just said who knew what the vast amounts of money were. It's an easy thing to say, but it's almost always either uh, ill-informed or uninformed. And so how much do we spend on everything in proportion is the real question. And what benefit do we get from it? So how do we know, say, the mass of ice in Greenland right now or in Antarctica? Or how do we know what the temperatures of the oceans are everywhere? How do we know the height of the oceans everywhere around the world? All of that stuff is being measured from space. So obviously there, there is enormous benefit, but it has to be in balance. And when you do the actual math for Canada, you know, for every thousand dollars the federal government spends, they spent 300 and something out of every thousand on health and welfare programs. And they spent, uh, I think it was four cents on the space program out of every thousand dollars. So I thought that was a reasonable balance. Finally, Chris, I didn't want to let you go before picking your brains about what's next for Chris Hadfield. You've, you've surprised us with the, with the novel. So I'm wondering, are we looking at celebrity chef, Olympic pole vaulter, uh, film director? <laughs> what am I going to be interviewing you about next year? Well, uh, I just, I love setting new challenges for myself. You know, I help run several space companies and, uh, and I teach at university and I really have enjoyed writing specialization is for insects. We're human beings. We should constantly be challenging ourselves to try and learn new things. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Really good to talk to you. Pleasure to speak with you, Ian. Be well. Thanks again to Chris Hadfield and Ian Sample. And if you're listening to this on Tuesday the 23rd of November... The Guardian's hosting a live event with Chris Hadfield tonight at 8pm GMT. Head to gu.com forward slash Guardian Live for details and a chance to ask him any questions yourself. We'll add a link to the event on the episode page, as well as to Chris's new book, The Apollo Murders. And that's it for today. We'll be back on Thursday.
This is The Guardian. Looking for your next great podcast? We live in unprecedented times. To make sense of it, what if you could learn from some of the most influential people on the planet? The podcast Tools and Weapons is hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Every week he has a candid conversation with guests, including Prime Ministers and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. The latest episode features Bayer CEO Bill Anderson. Though most of us know Bayer for pharmaceuticals, they're also focused on crop science. They're putting digital tools in the hands of farmers to get the most out of every acre. Listen to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts.